Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the On Meaningful Work podcast. I'm your host, Raul Sones, and I'm here with uh, Jeremy Meltzer. Uh, now, Jeremy is a social entrepreneur and really an inspiring voice for women's rights globally. And he is the founder and creator of I Equal Change, which is a platform to help retail brands, you know, make their giving easier. Welcome, Jeremy. Thank you. Good to be here. And good to see you again. Yeah, good to see you too, man. Um, so m- maybe we could start off with what, what is what is I Equal Change? I Equal Change is a tech platform which makes it simple and powerful for retailers to give back and to build purpose into the customer journey. Mm-hmm. And um, m- maybe say maybe going back to the beginning of maybe not I equal change, but maybe, you know, your story, where, where were you, where are you from? Where are you born? Uh, I was born in Melbourne mm-hmm. and uh, spent a lot of time though in, in, in Asia. In, uh, uh, our family took us traveling. And so we saw a lot of the developing world as, as young kids. And I, I think that for me was very formative. Mm-hmm. in that I saw poverty um, mm-hmm. and it was quite almost discombobulating because I would go away and we'd spend time in villages in the developing world and come back to a, a private school mm-hmm. and where kids were getting picked up by their parents in you know, Porsches and Mercedes mm-hmm. and for me I, I couldn't sort of marry the two worlds uh, you know, we would come back from a trip and the next day, you know, be at the school. And so I, I gained a, without having the language and understanding, I gained an, a, a sense of, of my privilege from a young age. Um, not knowing, of course, what I would one day do with it, but uh, I, I can trace it back to really being quite young uh, and and realising that something wasn't right with mm-hmm. these these two worlds. Of course, there's... There's more than two worlds, there's many worlds, but there are some very stark differences which arguably have only become starker mm-hmm. in the last 20 years between mm-hmm. those that have and, and those that do not. Do you think, looking back, was there an intention on the part of your parents to expose you as kids to to different parts of the world or was it more just you know, a, a tourist way of travelling? I don't think it was entirely conscious on their behalf. I mean, I, I think they did want us to have an, an insight into how fortunate we were. Uh, mm-hmm. But for them, it was an adventure. It was about understanding and learning from different cultures. It was about opening our eyes. Uh, it was about learning new cultures. And so, the yeah, I think that was their why. But yet, as kids, you know, being very sensitive, it affected me in that way my siblings not so much uh, so uh, yeah I, I don't think as parents you can engineer or the outcome you can only hope to sort of teach your kids certain values and uh, I think in essence that's, that's that, that is also what they were trying to do mm-hmm. and um, so you, you mentioned school what what were you like in school as a student uh, I was, I was quiet. I was 
thoughtful. I was, uh, I didn't really fit in. I, I kind of didn't want to play football. Uh, and I kind of wanted to sit with the girls because they seemed more interesting. <laughs> uh, and they were having more interesting conversations. Uh, and they let me, but to a point. Mm-hmm. And then I had to spend quite a bit of time alone. And so I think I was, um, you know, I, I didn't excel academically. I, I kind of did what I needed to do to get by. It didn't interest me that much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, I, I did well at sport and I, I, I ran and I, I sort of you know, became quite a long distance runner. And um, so, you know, I think at school, if you kind of excel at one thing, you, you sort of fit in. Um, so I, mm-hmm. I was never bullied because I was quite tall and, and I gentle and so I, I didn't I don't think kids really knew what to make of me because I didn't know what to make of myself uh, but you know I think we can all relate to that to some degree growing up um, yeah. no one knows where they fit in and everyone's trying to fit in um, mm. so uh, yeah that would have been my overwhelming uh, sort of ex- sense of, of what it was like growing up mm. and being at school and in what way, well, at you know, a young formative age, in what way were girls more interesting? I, I, I think we're talking pre-puberty or post-puberty. Well, both, really. Okay. <laughs> yeah. um, pre-puberty, mm. I just intuitively, I, I, I didn't. What didn't resonate? What didn't didn't resonate with me was the roughness of. of boys the, the football mm-hmm. the the aggressiveness uh, of course not all boys but it would happen on the football field and uh, I was drawn to the girls would sit in circles and they would talk and they would share and they would share their feelings a lot more than boys would uh, and of course that makes sense to me now and I have a much deeper understanding of uh, you know of why and and some of the challenges around that for both women and men mm-hmm. uh, but of course, you know, when I was eight, I had very little understanding, mm-hmm. or I had no understanding, and so I, I just was a little bit of an outlier or a misfit in that respect, in that I would, you know, want to sit with them, and um, and then of course I started chasing them, you know, post post uh, post pubescent, uh, and uh, you know, w- w- could see how wonderful you know women were, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how they seem to embody and epitomise so much of that was unique and precious and special. Mm-hmm. Um, and seem to be always more in touch with their emotions than men, mostly men are, uh, which is a huge part of, of the challenge we're facing on our planet today. Sure. Uh, but yeah, the, the formative years were did inform that understanding, even if it was in a very sort of simple way. Mm-hmm. Um, so you gave a TEDx talk a few years ago in, in Melbourne. And I think in, in that you, you mentioned this, this story of a tennis ball. And um, do, do, you, do you recall the story I'm talking about? You might have to remind me. Okay. All right. Um, this is, I'm quoting from memory, so I might butcher this. But, but it was... Uh, 
I think when you were a little kid, there was this kid with a tennis ball and, sh and he kept throwing the tennis ball at this girl. And, and I can't recall exactly the, the interaction, but I think just on the basis of your talk, which, you, which we will link to, that was, that was, that kind of highlighted this, the distinctions that you were trying to correct in the work that you do now. Yeah, so there was a, an aggressiveness which I noticed uh, amongst boys, which, again, without having the language to understand it or explain it, didn't resonate with me. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, it wasn't until later when I was in my... Well, really, I was, I was 21 mm -hmm. when I moved to, to Havana at, at a time when no tourists went there and had a Cuban girlfriend and was exposed to the really pointy end of, of male aggression, which is violence, mm -hmm. uh, and saw how destructive it can be in, in women's lives uh, and how common it was. And for me, that was a very powerful and formative set of experiences. And, and then I lived in Miami for three years. Um, mm -hmm. Also, almost every woman I met had a story. Mm -hmm. And... So, yeah, that, that became a big part of, um, of driving me to do, to do what I do today. Mm -hmm. what, what took you to Havana? Oh, it just sounded romantic at the time, to be honest. I mean, no one went there. Uh, it, it sounded and felt like an adventure and, and romantic. And so I thought, well, mm -hmm. let's get a one-way ticket to Havana and see what happens. And so mm -hmm. I did. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe what was what was happening uh, in your life around that time? Were you working? Or you just finished? Were you at uni or, or place us where you were? I deferred a year of university. So mm -hmm. I'd done a couple of years of Spanish, which was obviously helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, decided to defer travel, sort of work my way through. Um, sort of, I, I actually did a. Um, like an interchange between Monash University and an institute in Guanajuato, which is this sort of beautiful colonial town a couple of hours outside of Mexico City. Uh, mm. And from there I went traveling and ended up in Cuba. Uh, so yeah, it was that kind of little bit of a, a gap year. Mm -hmm. So you were studying Spanish at uni? I, I was, I did a Bachelor of Arts and, and majored mm. in Spanish, yeah. Okay. Um, so, so when you're thinking about, say, doing a Bachelor of Arts, like what kind of went into that decision? Were you? I, I just didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, mm -hmm. I was actually going to be a pilot because my uncle is a pilot. Uh, mm -hmm. And then I went flying on a little plane and I walked around the airfield, this little bush airfield where we'd hide a Cessna and, and something in me said, no, this is very prescriptive it's very uh, there's not much creativity when you fly the plane if you want to survive uh, you're not meant to push the wrong buttons you need to push all the right buttons uh, and so I thought no there's probably people that are better suited to be pilots and follow all the rules mm -hmm. and do the right thing because of course you have to when you're flying a plane and so I just thought well why don't I do an arts degree and and study for the sake of studying and just keep learning you know again a privileged mm -hmm. position to be in so I mm -hmm. I studied some philosophy and anthropology and marketing and ended up 
continuing with Spanish and, and marketing. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, it was really just the desire to, an opportunity to keep learning uh, without mm -hmm. having a sort of clear vocational direction yet. Mm -hmm. And so your experience in Cuba was really, was it the first time that um, domestic violence or violence against women really was in your face and really... Um, it was, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I saw it really closely. I mean, this guy who nine months ago had separated with Susanna, who was my girlfriend, came after us with, with a knife. Oh, wow. Randomly, okay. out of the blue, and, and just decided that he wanted Susanna back. And uh, I'm like, you know, what the hell's going on? Like, you broke up nine months ago, and, mm. you know, in Australia this doesn't happen. I mean, of course, I learnt later that it does happen in Australia. Mm -hmm. uh, it happens mm -hmm. everywhere. Uh, but in Latin America, it's, it's a little more accepted and expected mm -hmm. even, that that's just what men do. And so we had to kind of leave Havana late at night on some old motorbike because we didn't know what he was capable of. Uh, and every girl friend of hers who I chatted to had had some story. And so, yeah, it, it, was, it was in one's face and it was common and it was frequent. And, you know, what's interesting is that the on the surface, which is, I, get, I guess, part of the grand illusion. You know, everything looked fine and looked sexy and was Cuba and was Spanish, mm. and, you know, mm. salsa dancing, and yet seething underneath of this were people's complex relationships mm -hmm. and the conditions that had normalised different forms of male violence against women and girls. Uh, and, of course, the, the destruction that that left behind. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I was there wasn't long, it was four months, but I, I gained an insight into the impact of this, the complexity, uh, and left with a lot more questions than answers. You know, mm -hmm. what the hell's going on? Why do women think it's normal? Why do men think it's normal? And I realized there was a huge gap in my understanding around any of this. And so I, I started meeting with NGOs, any chance I had to travel, meeting with NGOs that work with women and girls and work to empower women and girls to understand or begin to understand some mm. of the complexities around this issue. Uh, mm. And that sort of informed the following sort of 10 years or so of, of my life. Mm -hmm. um, and when you went to seek out those NGOs, how did you go about doing that? Was it just as simple as Google search or were you talking to people? Or? Yeah, I just, you know, I reached out to a couple. I met people who recommended. I just followed my nose. Um, you know, doors started to open and it, it wasn't hard. I mean, I just wanted to learn from them and I, I explained that I was potentially building something that, you know, I'd love to be able to support them in the future. And, and, and they were mostly, you know, incredible and generous. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I went on trips with them into the, into the field and sort of saw the work they were doing and, uh, and listened and just asked a lot of questions. Uh, and it's led me to some pretty amazing places, like I was in the Rohingya refugee camp. Uh, mm -hmm. a couple of years ago. In uh, Myanmar? In yeah, well, actually, it, it, yeah, from Myanmar, but the camp's in Bangladesh. Okay. Yeah, the Bangladesh mm -hmm. side of the border. Mm -hmm. uh, and, yeah, that's those experiences have, have very much galvanised uh, me and, and the work that, that I do, that we do as a team now, uh, and really remind me of, of why, you know, when... 
as you know, building anything worthwhile is hard. Uh, mm -hmm. And so you, you need to know why, why you're doing it mm -hmm. in order to keep going. Mm. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's an incredible story. So I suppose after your experience in, in Cuba, like, it sounds like, like that really somehow, you know, gave you a North Star, gave you a purpose to, to, to you know, pursue. Uh, so while you were doing that, did, did, you know, did the real world, you know, somehow come and bite you in that, you know, I, I need to, I need to get a job or I need to, you know, do certain things. Like how, how are you, how are you balancing this pursuit of this goal versus, versus maybe if, if you had any, maybe, you know, like real world responsibilities? Well, I actually, uh, during that time, I, uh, we have a, a little olive oil farm um, mm -hmm. And so dad had planted all these tr olive trees and I was, I was living in the US at the time and saw an opportunity for us to be the first Australian olive oil in the US. So I started wow. a, a business with dad uh, and we, I, I spent several years coming, going back and forth from the States, mm -hmm. uh, going to dozens of trade shows and distributors and kind of learning very much uh, on the job around how the hell to build an olive oil business in the US. Um, that's amazing mm. and so that's what I did and and you know learned a lot about business as a result uh, and uh, yeah we very much learned as it unfolded but but that was very formative in that when I had this idea of how we could give back mm -hmm. to support these NGOs I'd been meeting we could test this little platform that I had imagined on our olive oil site um, mm -hmm and then managed to get some initial data. Uh, so it was really in bringing the two worlds together between the entrepreneurialism mm -hmm. and uh, my experiences in the impact sector uh, that the, you know, I'm forever grateful to that experience. Uh, and I think for all of us, you know, we, we look back and we can see the thread that links mm -hmm. our experiences. Looking forward, yep. we generally can't. Mm -hmm. uh, except we can only follow our instinct and try to uh, kind of get out of the way of where life wants to lead us. Mm. Uh, and so I think without knowing it or even having the language, I've, I've mostly done that. Mm -hmm. Of course, like all of us, I I've often have and still do get in the way. Mm -hmm. it's, it's part of the human condition. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I can look back and see how there's, yeah, it feels like there's something larger that's unfolding here. And no, you're absolutely right in that. And I suppose this podcast is really about, uh, you know, connecting those threads and, and, and seeing what, you know, what are those formative experiences that, that drives meaningful work. And then, um, and then, like, I really kind of did this for myself, you know, like, who can I emulate and whose stories can I really plug into? Um, but you know, going back to your story with the with the olive oil business, did I read somewhere that you ended up cooking with Martha Stewart? Is that? Uh, yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. How did that happen? Uh, how? Hmm? I just decided we should be on Martha Stewart, so I kind of I don't know called people, and hmm. somehow we made it happen. Um, 
Yeah, that was fun. That was kind of an interesting moment, cooking with Martha. Uh, people asked me, was that before or after she went to jail? It was after. Um, <laughs> and uh, she was still pretty, pretty tough. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that was you know that helped launch the business, at least the olive oil business in, in, in the states. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, you know, in the US, you go on a show or you get written up in an article, and people really respond and they buy. Mm -hmm. uh, so you know that helped us grow. And but I knew that regardless of how many olive oil bottles we sold, it wasn't fulfilling my soul. It wasn't. Mm -hmm. I knew that this was an if. Uh, mm -hmm. And to dad's disappointment, and it's been hard for him, um, mm -hmm. you know, I've had to sort of step aside from the olive oil business and it remains a very small business, you know, mm -hmm. Yelling Bow, which is where our, where our farm is. Mm -hmm. uh, but as you know, and as you do yourself, I mean, for those of us who have the capacity to, I think there's a responsibility to do. Mm -hmm and to not get too distracted in our human drama and just sort of bouncing from one pleasure to the next. Mm -hmm. uh, and the irony is, Rahul, as you know, I mean, the, the happiest people, I think I could speak for both of us, uh, we would meet, tend to be those who have really found a, they're on a mission. Absolutely. They've found a purpose. Yep. And they know, they have a feeling, a sense, an understanding of why they're here. Mm -hmm. understanding of how short this time is. And I think we've all been reminded of that during COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's even more prevalent and urgent for people who you know, feel that they, their journey is to somehow bend the moral arc of history. Absolutely. Um, so, um, you know, in, in our own little way, that's the journey we're, we're on. Mm. So, so maybe in a parallel universe, if you had stuck with olive oil, you would have You'd have had a comfortable life, and you would have, you know, done pretty well for yourself. Yeah, I think financially it would have made sense ultimately, yeah. but mm. but again, you know, seeing more zeros in the bank wouldn't have been it. Have never been it for me. Mm. Uh, and so, it's uh, I've always been a sensitive soul, and you know, I pursued music mm. at one point and. Uh, and you know, in fact, one of our board members said to me the other day, "You know, you're, we're talking about sensitivity," and he said, "You know, your greatest strength can be your greatest weakness, mm -hmm. and to be watchful and, and aware of that." Uh, and so that's always a, an interesting process as as you move into a leadership position, which I am in now. And, Managing mm -hmm. a growing team and a growing business, uh, so yeah, one challenge definitely becomes another. Uh, yep. It doesn't. It doesn't seem to get easier somehow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Before we get into that, how did the idea of I equal change come to you? Well, I um, I've been meeting these NGOs, and they all, of course, needed more funding to do their work. And so I simply, I had this idea, I was in New York at the time, and I remember waking up at three in the morning and, and I'd gone shopping and I'd seen where like a business or a supermarket would ask you to round up. 
mm-hmm. and they'd give a few cents away. And I, I remember thinking, there's got to be a better experience because as customers, we know that business, that brand is making money from us. Mm-hmm. Why are they asking us to now make the donation? They should be making the donation. Mm-hmm. They should be giving back. Mm-hmm. And so that was effectively the idea. I thought, what if we could make it easy for a business to give back and the customer could choose where it goes? So we effectively flipped the model. Mm-hmm. So, you know, with zero tech experience, uh, I found some people overseas and they built this very clunky minimum viable product mm-hmm. and we got it up on our website. The olive oil website, yeah. And, and we had a really good ex- uh, response from customers where they they were talking about it on social media, they purchased more, they were surprised and delighted by it. And so I guess looking back, it's, it's, it's kind of that story where you, you, you're solving a problem for yourself. And then I thought, mm-hmm. oh, wow, maybe this could be a solution for other businesses, for other mm-hmm. brands. If it's been working for our little olive oil business, maybe it could work for others. Mm-hmm. And so that was, in a nutshell, the genesis of, of, of the idea for, for I Could Change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, that's so. We, this is the thing I'm, I'm trying to kind of re- reconcile for myself as well. In, in that, you you call yourself a social entrepreneur, uh, but that that term somehow is somehow you know that term itself is somehow oxymoronic. In that, there's the social part of it in that, you know, we've got to do good for the world. And then there's the, the capitalist part of it in that, you know, it's, it's, you know, it'd be helping businesses in a way. How do, how do you reconcile that? I don't, I don't see an issue. I mean, mm-hmm. I think it's very important to work within the systems and structures we have mm-hmm. to create change from within. And you know, it, it's great and it can make a change by protesting and working from essentially the, the outside, as it were. Uh, but there's no silver bullet to creating the, the, the urgent social and environmental change that we need now. And I think working within what is currently the most robust business structures that we have, which is capitalists, uh, which is consumerist, indeed, uh, and speaking the language of business is, I think, ultimately the only only way to create wholesale shift. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we've been very clear and very unapologetic about that. You know, we speak about the way that we present I Could Change is through a marketing lens. We talk about the benefits brands can get. Mm -hmm. Uh, We talk about the return. We talk about the increase in conversions and click-through rates and engagement. And, and we speak a marketing language that, that resonates with them. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's working. And I think if we spoke to them just about the impact, it would have mm-hmm. had much less effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we kind of speak the language of business, we speak the language of marketing, and in doing so, we're creating this growing and sustainable funding stream for best practice NGOs. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a key lesson which I, I stand by in respect to the, the principles of it, mm-hmm. uh, which is working from within the system to change mm-hmm. the system. Yeah. And I think that that, that is also the, 
philosophy of our, of our common friend, you know, Simon Griffiths, with, you know, who gives a crap, um, in that yeah, his idea was, you know, people are already buying things like toilet paper and, and beer. You know, why not use that to really, you know, then do, do good? Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, people are going to buy stuff. They're going to shop. You know, they need stuff. Uh, do we buy more than we need? Absolutely. Should we be shopping less? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But it's probably going to be not... A, that's going to be a really slow change as people become, you know, simplify their lives and live more uh, minimalistically. Uh, but, yeah, if they're going to buy, let, let's sort of leverage the power of those purchases and, and turn it into a, into a force for good. Uh, and you know that has now raised five million dollars and counting. Uh, I would never have believed it was going to hit this milestone, but we did just wow. in, at the end of December. Yeah. Uh, and you know we've already at over five million two hundred fifty thousand uh, dollars, one dollar at a time. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, it's very humbling um, and. You know, I take the money we're raising now with a great deal of responsibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's the whole methodology around who we partner with and why. And, and, and we're really bridging worlds now between the retail sector and the NGO sector uh, mm-hmm. in, in quite a unique way. Mm-hmm. And, and so going back to the start of I Equal Change, you know, you started with your, with your family business, with, with the olive oil. Uh, you were able to, I suppose, prove the concept there. Um, then how did you kind of move on from there? Like, wh- what was your next steps to to get this out to the world? Well, I we had this minimum viable product, and I uh, I thought, okay, we need another business to test this on. So mm-hmm. I uh, I made some phone. F- I was asking people, and they said, oh, well, someone knew. The, the woman who, who runs and owns Nine West in Australia. And mm-hmm. so I, 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 of course, didn't know her, but I kind of politely harassed a few people and, you know, through seven degrees of separation, someone sort of gave me her number. And I just left her a message and said, look, I, you know, I know so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and, so-and-so and uh, I've got this idea. I thought if you want to give back, you know, we've got this plug-in. Um, give me a call if you're interested and she did the following day. Um, wow. And they were with us for a couple of years and mm. we were really able to improve and build upon what was a very early idea at that point. Uh, you know, it's sort of seven, eight years ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's how we started in terms of growing our retailer base. And look, it's taken a long time. I mean, it's only you know now that businesses realise they must have a purpose beyond, their, beyond a product. Uh, mm-hmm. But you know, eight years ago, it, I would go to these retail conferences, and I'd be the only one there talking about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was about influencers, about optimizing your site, it was about mm-hmm. you know seducing people to buy stuff in any way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now, what's was a nice to have is becoming a must have, and COVID has definitely accelerated that. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it's definitely been a long journey, not only to working out what we're doing and the technology and how it works and making it scalable but also to sort of seeing that the, the, what the, a social movement and a business movement coalesce around a, a growing sense of urgency 
mm -hmm. in this time that, that we must all be part of the change. And if not, mm -hmm. you know, in 10 years, we're, not gonna, we're probably not going to have a planet that is you know, able to sustain us. So mm -hmm. business won't really matter at that point. So there is definitely a growing sense that we all must play our part. Yeah, and, and does that reflect in the metrics in terms of you know the customers who or your the businesses who who use I equal change? Is there better engagement from their customers? Yeah, well, what we're seeing now is quite extraordinary. Like brands are going live; they're building the messages that they're giving into the customer journey, like the home page, the product page, the basket page, etc. And it's driving growth. It's driving mm -hmm. growth far more than it's costing them. It's unlocking revenue. Um, we've just, we're about to launch this campaign called Shop for Change for International Women's Day, which mm -hmm. uh, we've got some amazing people uh, who are on part of this new video, mm -hmm. some, some really well-known faces. Uh, and that is effectively just a simple increased donation campaign. So for Shop for Change brands increase their giving from $1 to $3 per sale for three days. And when brands run these campaigns and don't have to discount, but are able to feature their impact instead, we're seeing it unlock like 16, 18 to 20% increased conversion rates, 60% um, mm. increase in EDM open rates. The kind of metrics that marketers just don't see anymore uh, because consumers care, because consumers, we all want to shop brands that reflect our value. We all want to feel good about our purchases. Mm -hmm. We all want to buy from businesses that are building a better world. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's taken us all by surprise the extent to which it is driving those kind of metrics. Mm -hmm. uh, but that just shows, I think, how you know, I could change and, and, and you know, anything like this is, is really is, is, very, is important and is reflecting the zeitgeist and is mm -hmm. uh, meeting people where they're at at this point. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's that's exciting, and and once again, it's it's humbling. Mm. And so maybe going back to your experience in in Cuba, you know, when you first were, I suppose, exposed to violence against women, is is the focus of I equal change primarily on empowering women and girls? That remains our DNA. I mean, we have branched out into projects that are working to mitigate climate change. Mm -hmm. uh, because of the obvious urgency of climate change as well. Uh, but still the majority of our projects are working within Australia and globally to empower women and girls and even challenge ideas and constructs of masculinity, mm -hmm. uh, working with school-aged children, with the Man Cave, for example. Oh, yeah. Uh, so we work with you know NGOs both small and large, from UNHCR to... Save the Children, to Médecins Sans Frontières, to much smaller ones that are working on the ground in Australia mm -hmm. and globally, um, and tracking that impact to make sure that the money has the greatest, can create the greatest change. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe looking at yourself now, do, do you see yourself as an, as an entrepreneur? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't... I don't know. I mean, I guess, I don't know how helpful labels are, but I mean, yeah, I guess it's entrepreneurial, what we're doing. Yep. Um, yeah, sure, uh, I can live with that. <laughs> you could be called a lot worse, yeah. <laughs> True. 
But the reason I ask that question is, I, I think for me, I've kind of gone back and forth and and it, it took a bit of transition. Uh, it's something that I, I had to really look into, you know, my mindset and my habits and, you know, um, kind of the way I approached or looked at problems. Um, did, you, did you find that for you? Like, was there a transition from who you were to, you know, to being an entrepreneur? I, I mean, I always had that entrepreneurial spirit, I think, which I got from my family. Uh, I always struggled to work for someone, so I always knew that I would work out some way of working for myself. Um, not that it's any easier, you just, um, or you work less, you definitely don't, but um, yeah. it, it, it aligned more with my spirit and sense of freedom and mm. sense of um, reimagining possibilities uh, and not being constrained by other people's ideas. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, the social part makes sense, be social entrepreneur, mm -hmm. uh, but I, I don't think it matters, to be honest. I, I think the, you know, the social entrepreneur label uh, you know, can help and harm. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, they, they tend to be sort of smaller uh, businesses uh, mm -hmm. or, or enterprises. Uh, of course, you know, they can become large ones, which is fantastic. That's, that's always possible. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think, I mean, one approach we've always taken, and it wasn't even a strategic one, it was just felt right. It was to, from the beginning, we started talking to the largest businesses we could, mm -hmm. uh, which meant me going and walking around these retail uh, conferences where I didn't know anyone mm -hmm. and just knocking on doors uh, where no one was talking about this. No one was letting anyone speak about it. No one even had anyone on the panel talking mm -hmm. about sustainability or impact or, or giving. Uh, mm -hmm. And now it's, it's, it's become a must have at these conferences. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I think the challenge and, and the thing to be watchful of is, is the them and us. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. Um, because that doesn't change anything. Uh, mm -hmm. The them are just people like everyone who grew up and everyone's on their journey. And, uh, but if the them are the ones who have more influence, the them is those we need to be speaking to, mm -hmm. uh, not people who get it. Yeah. Uh, yep. And not people, because otherwise we, do, you know, we just drink the Kool-Aid mm -hmm. and not much changes and feel good about ourselves. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, and again, it seems to be working, you know, we're sort of um, mm. you know, working with some larger brands now, which is exciting. Yeah, but, but I think, you know, that, that's what I mean right there in that, that ability to, you know, walk around and then maybe, you know, talk to strangers and sell your idea, you know, uh, for me, that didn't come naturally, like that took a bit of a transition and and in in my mind that's what needed to change in that you know there's there's one way of looking problems but this is something that you need to get used to to really um to really bridge that gap yeah well i mean to sell anything you've got to hustle right yeah. so you know i'd go to these conferences and just wait for speakers to get off stage and pounce on them <laughs> um you know gently but I would do it and say, look, you know, I've got this idea. And mostly it led nowhere. Mm. Uh, but, you know, whether you're selling umbrellas or something in the impact space, you've got to hustle. 
Uh, and I think mm. I learned that in the US as well, where it's, you've got to really hustle to get anything mm. done. Uh, so, you know, it's, um, it's about like everything in life, you no know, leaning into those parts of us that are uncomfortable. Mm. Uh, and, you know, the sales process, as it were, I still don't enjoy it, but I need to do it. And increasingly, you know, I've got a, a team who are, who are working on that and, and taking a lot of the work off me, which is great. Um, mm. So, but yeah, it, it's about having the, and, and you know, from every conversation you learn something, right? You know, I, mm. I learned about what retailers were looking for and what their pain points were. And, and as a result, we were able to build a better product, which we, we keep iterating to this day. Mm-hmm. And so maybe, say, looking back, you know, to what we talked about, your, your childhood and your formative years and those trips you took as a family and then coming back and um, feeling that disconnect of, you know, how, I suppose, privileged you were and, you know, how, you know, there's actual real problems in the world out there. Um, I suppose connecting the threads now, do you feel that I equals change is the fulfillment of that, of that disconnect that you saw or... Is there something more that that's in you? I I do. I uh, I mean, this still keeps me awake. Like I woke up at four this morning with ideas for the business, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and haven't slept since. Um, I've got an idea for a TV show, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, around featuring the the impact leaders who are working on some of the great challenges of our time. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's evolving, right? But uh, I definitely feel that. This is, we're, we're on the journey. I feel mm. we're on the journey. And it's very satisfying to be on the journey. And, and I, there is no destination um, except, you know, moments of feeling, you know, some satisfaction, even though I probably should allow myself more of those than I do. Because mm-hmm. I generally just keep sort of flogging myself um, a lot more than I'm being told I should. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, it, on the journey. You know, it, it's... Um, and for anyone doing anything, it, it's you know it is a cliche, but it is about the journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, you know, I hope your listeners are better at sort of celebrating the small wins than I am. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm trying to teach myself to do that as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And maybe th- this is an odd question, and it's somewhat difficult for me to ask because I'm grappling this with myself. But it's a question around privilege in that, you know, we both kind of come from privileged backgrounds and then um, kind of, I suppose, leveraging that to do what you're doing now. How, how do you think about your, your privilege and, you know, and relating to I equal change and, and what and the impact you're creating? Well, I am... Um... How do I think about it? Only that, I mean, everyone's a product of their background, right? Most Mm -hmm. of it we didn't choose. Mm -hmm. Uh, Our family, our education, religion, place of birth, most of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what can you do except try to do the best with it? I mean, I went to school with kids from some of the wealthiest families in Australia. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, the toys that they had access to, boats and cars, and you know, it was mind-blowing. Mm. Uh, and I think I was quite judgmental as, as a young, as a teenager. Uh, and now I'm far more kind of zen about it. I'm like, you know, everyone's on their journey and everyone's doing their best with mm -hmm. what they have. Uh, although I do feel that, you know, as human beings, we tend to remain very distracted. Mm -hmm. uh, and where we're not distracted, we create distraction. Uh, mm. And there's a lot of anxiety and depression in, in Western societies. Mm. Uh, and I always think, you know, collectively we could be doing more. Uh, but I, I don't want to be prescriptive because, I mean, not, not only who am I to, it's uh, where everyone is, everyone comes to different realizations at, at different points. I mean, I think what I'm what I've realized through I could change is that we all care about something, right? Mm -hmm. um, which is actually the simple idea of this video we've shot. Uh, mm -hmm. And we've been fortunate to have you know, the incredible Adam Goods uh, and CEOs of you know, amazing retail partners and, and, and uh, NGO partners mm -hmm. share what they care about. To highlight that simple idea that we all care about something. And so I think the next step for business is just to engage uh, their community mm -hmm. uh, with every every time they speak to them mm -hmm. around their greater purpose um, and undoubtedly uh, these are the businesses of, of today and the businesses of tomorrow but we need them to be the businesses of today mm -hmm. um, I mean, we've got case studies which are quite extraordinary as, as I mentioned showing how the brands that are giving back uh, are growing and unlocking revenue far more than those that don't Mm -hmm. So, you know, to give consumers a clear choice, you shop as usual, just buy mm -hmm. a product or buy a product and know that that business gives back and you get to choose where it goes, choose the adventure of its mm -hmm. impact. You know, who would you rather support? Yep. You know, for 99% of us, it's pretty clear. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think that's an exciting way to take everyone on or a larger, much larger group of people on, on this journey. Uh, to remind us what we care about, to remind us that we can make change, to remind us that we are powerful, to remind us that our choices matter, to remind mm -hmm. us that we're living in urgent times, and to remind us of our collective responsibility. Thank you, Jeremy. Uh, this is a final question. Um, what does the term on meaningful work mean to you? It means being able to wake up and know why you're doing what you do. Mm -hmm. uh, to feel proud that the work you do might leave a legacy, might change something, might chip away at a set of structures and ideas that are that only exist because of en enough of us believe in it mm -hmm. and support them. Uh, it means to feel a sense of, of pride, uh, in doing what you do, uh, and also to hopefully, when the time is right, also be a teacher and mentor and give back to others who have undoubtedly opened doors for us on our journey so that we can do what we do. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Thanks so much, mate. Really appreciate the time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Talk soon. All right, Rahul. Cheers. All right. Cheers. Bye bye.
Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you're enjoying and are learning from this podcast, please subscribe on YouTube, Apple, and Spotify. A great zero-cost way to support us is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you are feeling extra generous, it would be great if you could leave a comment or feedback on our Apple Podcast or YouTube pages. Or you could email your comments and feedback to me directly at rahul at disruptivebusinessnetwork.com. That's R-A-H-U-L at disruptivebusinessnetwork, all one word, dot com. Finally, a big shout out to our producer, Dan Scahill, for his work on the keys and to Vashti Civil for writing the original music for our theme. Until next time, this is your host, Rahul Sohn, signing off. Bye.